Hi, I'm Adam Sanford. I'm an academic life coach and professor in Los Angeles. And I'm Dinur Bloom. I'm a college professor in Los Angeles. And this is Learning Made Easier, a podcast where we discuss how we learn and how we teach and how they overlap. back to Learning Made Easier. You're listening to our Teaching in Transition episodes, which outline how teaching has changed and has to change as a result of the COVID-19 pandemic. We were calling these the COVID-19 special episodes till we realized we were mainly talking to teachers about how our lives and professions have changed. That is, teaching is now in, in transition. In these episodes, we will unpack some of the major issues teachers are facing due to the changes required by the pandemic, as well as ways to deal with these issues. So carrying on from our previous episode numbers, this is our 19th episode in the series, where we'll talk about the issue of having to teach synchronously online because your institution or department requires it. We'll be spending a few episodes on this, and in this first one, we're going to talk about the assumptions the institution is making about how teaching through video conferencing ought to work and how it actually does or doesn't. When COVID first hit, many people moved online, but not in the way that most online pedagogy professionals would recognize. Online teaching is very different from in-person teaching in several ways, and those ways may not be obvious until you've dropped into the thick of it. So over the past, God, how many months has it been now? Since March, anyway. Dinor and I have been members of online teaching communities that formed specifically around the pandemic, as well as some that had existed for longer than that. And a lot of people were working on teaching by basically holding a class on Zoom or on Skype or on Microsoft Teams or on Google Hangouts at exactly the same time that they would have met if we had still been on campus in person. And this revealed a number of assumptions that institutions and in some cases instructors were making about how video learning will work, how online synchronous learning works. And it also exposed a lot of ways that it doesn't. So when we would say, because Denor and I were fortunate enough to be at campuses that basically allowed us to move our classes completely online and non-synchronous, and we would say, you know, you really need to not teach synchronously. We were told, I have no choice. My college is telling me I have to. My university is saying I have to. My department won't let me teach anything, but we meet at the same time we would have met when we were on campus. And while the impulse to do that, it's understandable. A lot of places wanted to provide stability. A sense of, stru sense of structure. Right, a sense of structure and a sense of stability and things haven't changed that much. It rapidly became clear that things had changed that much and a, and a lot of institutions were effectively in denial. And so the two big ones that institutions assumed and then all the other assumptions kind of stem from that is the idea that interaction through video conference is identical to interaction in person. And let's just debunk this first one right away. There was an article written two months into the pandemic maybe i think it came out in like late april or early may and it was saying of course you're feeling zoom fatigue because because interacting in a video conference is nothing like interacting in an in-person situation and as a person who's autistic i was actually kind of smug when i read it because it was saying you, when you're in a video conference you miss all the body language you miss most of the tone of voice you miss most of the facial expressions right i didn't know just 
you know, for me, video conferencing isn't that different, but for a lot of people who are not autistic, it's like night and day. And I remember reading a discussion of that article and one woman said, yeah, I can't roll my eyes at anybody anymore. And I didn't understand why that was such a big deal until I realized I have rolled my eyes at people in say academic Senate meetings or in faculty meetings. And I didn't realize how much of a loss that would be for both the professors and for the students. And there's this assumption that anything that we can do in person, we can easily transition and do it online. And kind of like the point that Adam made, they're two entirely different beasts. We can still teach online and we can still teach effectively online, but it means that we've got to change the tools that we're using and it means we've got to gauge our understanding and our way of interacting with our students a little bit differently than when we were meeting face-to-face -face in the classroom. Or a lot bit differently. Think about a sculpture class. You can't really do that online, all right? Students don't happen to have a kiln sitting at home most of the time. Or how about a performance class? Dance or choir or uh, band? You know, if you're in any kind of performance class, theater, I was, I was just reading the other day, someone was talking about how theater is not about memorizing lines. It's about everything else. It's about lighting. It's about blocking. It's about how you move on a stage. It's about how you adjust to the other actors as you're moving on a stage. It's how you project your voice in a theater. It isn't as simple as just memorize these lines. Theater is not just a table reading. And a lot of theater classes have turned into Let's read the script of this play by Shakespeare, and it is not the same thing as practicing a play. And then, of course, there's lab-based classes, biology, chemistry, physics, nursing. My, my campus has a huge nursing program. How do you do hands-on nursing online? You can't. And so these two assumptions are really suspect, and they're often instructors walked in with them but more and more it was the institution saying you can do it online if you could do it in person you can do it online and we're finding out that it's a huge blind spot that administrators have that teaching on the ground is going to feel very differently than whatever administration thinks teaching is and i remember in our groups before we even get into some of the more nitty-gritty details there would be people say but i but i teach with the socratic method how do I do that in an online class when I can't gauge how they're reacting because it's a row of black squares? How am I supposed to do my job when I can't do it the way I've always done it? And for some folks who have been teaching for 20, 30, 40 years in the same way, every semester, they're used to it. Not, I won't say you get in a rut, but you get in a pattern where you're just used to it. And then trying to break out of that pattern is very uncomfortable. Teaching becomes routinized, it becomes a routine, and now you've got to adapt that routine because something outside your control is forcing you and you wouldn't have done that otherwise. And when we're forced into something new that we don't want to do, we're probably not especially good at it. Now, some of the minor things that institutions were also assuming, you know, after these two big ones that we just talked about, how exactly do you take attendance in a video conference? Do you waste 20 minutes reading all the black squares, hoping that all the students put their names in correctly? I mean, the number of times that I've gotten a student coming into office hours just this semester with the name Jane's iPhone, that doesn't help me. I don't know which of the nine Janes in my class you are. Or out here, it's more likely to be Jose's iPhone or Maria's iPhone. And it's like, which one of the four in my class are you? 
Okay, you got to fix that. But students don't think about that. At least you've gotten a name. I've had people sign in that just say iPad or iPhone or Android, and I'll have to message them going, uh -huh. I don't know who you are. I don't know if you're in this class or if you found it by accident. And it's unlikely, but I still need to be able to know who you are. And I've told my students, if I don't know who you are, I can't give you credit for participation. Right. And I can't even let you in from the waiting room. You know, that's how I have to do my classes every day is there's a waiting room. We're required to have a waiting room or a password. Well, passwords can be hacked. So the waiting room is more, you know, I make sure that I have my roster and that the waiting room and then I'll get a student coming in as iPad and I'll send them a message saying, I need your full name as it appears on my roster or I can't let you into class. But that wastes my time too, right? Letting people into the classroom. And I don't hold required in-person classes. And we will talk about some ways to cope if your institution is demanding that you do it. I don't hold wired uh, live classes, but I do hold meeting times and I reserve them for different groups of students based on what class they're in. Another assumption that we see a lot from both instructors and institutions, but, but institutions more than instructors, is this idea that if they're there, they're engaged. Attendance equals engagement. And yeah, but no. Well, it's fine because we also see it from instructors where they say, if I can't see their face, then how do I know they're engaged? So it's effectively both sides of the engagement coin, but they're taken to two extremes. One extreme is if they've signed in, that by definition means they're engaged. The other is a lot more cynical saying, well, if they're not showing their face, then it means they're not engaged. And neither of these assumptions is necessarily accurate. Mm -hmm. In fact, I would argue that neither of them is ever accurate. And then this is a bias that we see a lot, especially from people who have never or only rarely or under duress, like many of us have uh, taught online, is the idea that live real-time lectures are always preferable to, a, you know, to recorded asynchronous lectures. And any online pedagogy professional will tell you that's not true. Because in a live lecture, in order to get what word you just said that they missed, the student has to interrupt you and everyone else. But with an asynchronous recorded lecture, they can stop you and rewind you and listen to you again. And if you were if you were kind enough to put captions on, which you should be doing under ADA rules, then they can turn the captions on and find out how the word is spelled. That actually is superior to a live lecture because then the student doesn't waste their time and they're not frantically scribbling down everything you said because they know they can rewind it. They can pause it. They can come back and look at it again. They can read the captions. And so that assumption is not only incorrect, it, it may even be damaging for the students and for you as a teacher. And one of the other ways it's an advantage to you to teach online is that let's say a student keeps rewinding, they can't figure out the word, they look at the transcript, it's not showing up, or they can't figure out which word is missing, they can email you and you and can say, at this point in your lecture, you start with this and then I can't make out what you say. So that way you're able to answer questions a little bit more discreetly for the students. They don't have to raise their hands and feel awkward in front of their peers. And you can always say, if you notice that this that the same class keeps sending you similar questions you can post something on the learning management system saying hey i know that this part didn't come out so clear here is what i said here's what this means i tell my students whenever they have a question i need to know why they're confused 
So if they email me and they say, hey, in your check-in video that you posted, there was a point where I couldn't understand what you said here. I'm going to go back, listen to it right there, and I'm going to say, okay, this is what I said, typey typey um, Or your instructions don't make sense. Okay, why not? Let's talk about this. And folks, this is a way to improve your own pedagogy, whether you're online or off. But it is also something that online pedagogy makes a lot simpler and a lot less stressful than it might be for you and your students. Now, some other assumptions are about time, technology, and space. And Janor and I are actually co-authors on a chapter. We're co-authors on a chapter that our friend Stacy Smith, who we interviewed in episode 10, is publishing in, uh, in an upcoming book. And time, space, and tech are really big issues for students. And a lot of institutions don't realize just how much having a dorm room, having access to a computer lab on campus, having access to the library is important to students' learning process. And so a lot of institutions, when we all had to go online back in March, assumed that faculty and students have the available technology and space to do well at teaching and learning, that they have the available time to go to lectures at the same time they were scheduled on campus, that they have the available space in their homes to attend or teach those lectures at the same scheduled time. These are all really bad assumptions, folks. Administration more often than not assumes that students and faculty all share a middle class to upper class wealth, meaning that they're going to have the ability by the newest technology, have consistently strong internet, that they're able to have enough space at home to do everything. They have their own bedroom with a desk in it. These are assumptions that, while understandable for people who are upper to middle upper class, that doesn't mean that's the way it is for the majority of our students. And I have had this argument with someone who identified themselves in a teaching forum as they were at a small liberal arts college. Well, how nice for you. You live in Richville, but I'll bet you have at least one student who's on a scholarship who is scraping together every penny they've got to pay for their meals. Adam and I teach, teach primarily working class students. We teach at, at state schools in the same system. And we know that our students are blue collar. They're hard workers, but they may not have a lot of wealth. They may not have a ton of money from family. And you would think that administration at our campuses would take that into account. That's not always the case. I had a student email me when fall semester started saying, I can't watch any of the videos because my computer's too old. I've scraped together the money to order a new computer, but it won't be here until a week from Thursday. What do I do? Because I can't watch the videos and I can't upload anything. And I told them, do what you can, save it on your computer, transfer it to the new one when it comes. We have flexible deadlines for a reason. And folks, that's actually one of the things that we suggest just as a general thing during this pandemic, be flexible with your deadlines. Another couple things that administrators assume is that faculty know how to use the tech and they know how to deal with problems like disruption or a Zoom bombing when someone manages to get into your Zoom room that wasn't invited and they start posting horrific pictures or they start blowing out the speakers or whatever. And they also assume that students know how to use the tech required for the class. I had a student email me yesterday and she said, I can't figure out Blackboard. I don't understand why but I don't understand how Blackboard works. This is not making any sense to me. Why can't Blackboard do what I need it to do? I don't understand. 
and well, it's not my job to train you in Blackboard. I'm not an IT professional. So I had to send her to the tutorials. And she came back saying the tutorials are assuming that I know what this and this and this are. I don't know what they are. So I finally had to contact the head of IT and say, you need to find somebody to help her translate these terms because I don't actually know what those are either. And they're in your tutorials. You need to fix that. Assumptions that the institutions as a whole make and we're focusing on administration there. But instructors also have a lot of assumptions. A lot of assumptions are negative or negatively biased against students such as if students have the opportunity to cheat because all of our exams are now at home, then they're going to cheat. And that's a really low view of your students if that's your first inclination that, of, that the second that the rules change that they're going to use it nefariously. And one thing that I've done, even when I taught in person, was I always had my students take my tests online. And one of the things I was thinking was, well, what if my students use the book? What if they use the slides? And I thought to myself, we could view it as cheating, but do we really wanna rely on the honor system or have people feeling like they've gotta sneak around to pass the class? I didn't want that. So I told my students, you can use everything. You can use the slides, the books, uh, my students can listen to the lectures, although given the time constraints, they can't listen to too much, they'll run out of time. But what that does is it lets them feel like they can use this material, they're not getting away with anything, and it just changes the nature of the questions that I ask. Instead of seeing what they remember, I can ask them the questions I actually care about and see how they can work with this material, given that they have the information available to them more and more, the workforce is no longer about what you can memorize. It used to be. Let's not pretend it wasn't. But today, in the information age, it's more about what can you find, what can you use. Anyone who thinks, for example, that a lawyer has memorized all those books of law in their library, try again. And when I was in undergrad, my second time through undergrad, I took a class in business math because I was working purchasing clerk. And the professor told us flat out, he said, open, you have an open book test because I know that it's impossible to remember all these formulas. You're going to have this on your shelf when you're an accountant or whatever you're doing with your business math degree. You're going to need this as a reference. You're going to need to know how to pull it down and find the formula you need to do the thing you need to do for whatever client you're serving. I have taken a similar tack with my exams. They're open book. They're open note. They always have been. I only let them uh, stay open for a day, so they open at midnight 01, because when I said midnight, students said, do you mean midnight on Saturday night or midnight on Sunday night or midnight on Monday? So it's like, okay, 1201 on Sunday morning, and then they're open until 11 p.m., and they have that entire 23-hour period to do it. And the reason I did it that way was because I didn't want to waste in-class time back when we had in-class meetings on a test when they could be getting new information. And secondly, I wanted them to take the exam when they were at their peak time. Because some of us are morning people and we work best at 5 a.m. and some of us are night owls and we really do better if we are doing something around one o'clock in the morning. Or we're an afternoon person and we really do our best if we are taking the test at three o'clock in the afternoon. Why wouldn't I want my students to be able to play to their strengths? 
And like Denur, I write questions that go beyond, do you remember this or do you know this word to, okay, here's a situation, which one of these four things are we looking at? So that they have to actually apply and use what they know. There are always ways to create quizzes and exams and assessments that make it you know, not worth the student's time to cheat. You should be designing your classes as open book, open note classes. And there are people who will argue with me and that's nice, but if your program demands memorization, it's from the 1950s and it needs to come into the 21st century. And another way to reduce the likelihood of cheating is lower how much your tests are worth. Students are less likely to cheat on something that's low stakes because the reward isn't as high as the cost that they risk if they're caught cheating. So one way to deal with that is just lower the benefit of it. Another assumption that a lot of instructors have is that if students don't have their webcams on, then by definition, they're not paying attention to the lecture, they're not engaged in the class. But some of our students are in living situations where they don't want their peers to see into their homes. They don't want us to see into their homes for whatever reason. It could be their young children running around. It could be there are a lot of people in a small space. It could be they're not living in the greatest area and they don't want to highlight it. But the way that I think Adam and I see it is it's a privacy issue. A student can have their camera off and appear as a black square in my lectures, but I'll know they're engaged because I see them typing in the chat box on Zoom. They'll ask me questions or they'll unmute themselves and they'll ask me something verbally. So just because I can't see all of their faces doesn't mean that they're not working. It doesn't mean they're not engaged. It just means I'm not going to see where they are. And this goes back to that issue too about the assumption of the middle-class lifestyle. A lot of students don't have their own bedroom. Maybe they're sharing their bedroom with one or two siblings at home. Maybe the only place that they can find a spot where they can set down their computer is the kitchen table, but it's in the kitchen and there are six other people in the house. And there are other things that are, you know, even less comforting, like maybe they're in an abusive situation. Maybe they've got an abusive partner or an abusive parent, and they're doing their best to not annoy the partner or the parent. You know, or they've got to make sure that nobody sees what their actual living situation is. Maybe they've got a bruise, and they really don't want you to see the bruise on their face. And if they were coming to an in-person class, they might wear a hoodie and a pair of big sunglasses, but that looks weird when you're sitting on, on Zoom, right? When you're sitting on a Zoom window, putting on the big sunglasses to hide it, that's, that's actually drawing attention to it. Another assumption is if students don't attend a lecture, it's due to them being lazy or disrespectful. And this ignores the fact that our students have to take care of their relatives. Our students might be essential workers and don't have a lot of control over their work schedules. It's assuming a lot, and it's assuming a lot of bad things if you think that students aren't attending class just out of laziness or out of disrespect our students are people that means they've got things going on in their lives that they may not want us to know and we have to respect that it's also none of our business but we also have to account for that absolutely because some of the stuff like i got into it with someone who said well students should always tell me everything that's going on so that i know that they're not cheating and i know that they're not lazy and it's like it's none of your damn business if they can't come to class today it's none of your business why you don't actually have the right to demand that they tell you that you know that they were sick and they went to the hospital and frankly folks 
most of the time when our students miss a class, they email us with this frantic and and really over descriptive, um, you know, I was puking for four hours or my little brother's in the hospital or, you know, stuff that I'm not actually comfortable knowing sometimes. It's rare that a student doesn't let you know why they weren't there. And assuming it's because they're lazy or disrespectful, that's really doing a disservice to your students. Don't do that. That's not kind to them, especially now. So what if they do cheat? So what if they are lazy? Given this situation, given what we're all going through with the pandemic, cut them some slack, folks. If students are casually dressed, then that's disrespectful. Oh, I find that one hilarious because I promise you, even when I teach in person, I'm generally lecturing in a t-shirt and jeans. I certainly am wearing a t-shirt when I lecture on Zoom. I don't care what my students wear. I think it's But you're wearing pants. You're wearing pants. They're the tool of the oppressor. I'm just Hey, I said in person. I didn't say on Zoom. (laughs) As long as your students are clothed, why do you care what they're wearing? The assumption might be, look, I want my students to dress up because this is their job. And in a job, you might have to dress a certain way. And we understand that. We understand that you're trying to professionalize them and socialize them. But when people work online, most tend to dress pretty casually because they're working from home. So they're going to wear stuff that's comfortable for them. Why are we trying to enforce dress codes for adults, no less, during a pandemic? It seems like it's just an excuse to be a control freak and to try and force students into something that may not be at the top of their priorities. And any kind of rules that you make for your Zoom room class or for your video conference class that say things like you have to wear good clothing and you have to be in a quiet space and you have to make sure there's no disturbances on your side. How nice for you. Come back from dreamland, please. That's not actually possible for many of our students. And the more you demand it, the more they're going to remember you as the jerk control freak that made them feel like they shouldn't even be in college. Do you want to be that person? Because one of the things we need to be keenly aware of is that students have two curriculums when they're in school. There's the one that we're conscious of. There's what we're teaching. But when we send the messages of you have to dress a certain way, you have to present yourself a certain way, we have these expectations that really are kind of outside your control, but you better follow them. We're sending them the message that if they don't conform to what our ideal of the ideal college student is, then we're making them feel bad. And we're not going to get their best efforts. We're not going to get their best work. We're certainly not going to create a welcoming and learning environment if we're so focused on controlling every aspect of our students' behavior, especially given everything going on in the world. And the last big assumption that Adam and I see instructors making is that teaching requires back and forth conversation during live lectures. Any other form of teaching is inherently not as good or it's suspect or it's just not up to standard. And look, when I teach, I love to pepper my students with questions, whether it's in person or even now during Zoom, because it is one way that I can engage them. But there are other ways I can engage them. 
as we go through the term, I'm trying to think of discussion board topics. And sometimes that happens because of a discussion that we had on Zoom in a certain class. Something will stick with me and I'll say, this seems like a really good question and I want to see what you all think about it. And that means that, yeah, it came because of some good back and forth conversation, but we've already found at least one way that we can engage students that doesn't involve having to meet in person in real time. Here's the thing too, about this, there needs to be back and forth conversation and live lectures. A lot of professors are repressed actors. We love the performance aspect of being at the front of the room and peppering the students with the questions and calling on them and getting answers. A lot of us went into teaching because we watched Dead Poets Society and we said, yeah, I want to be Mr. Keating when I grow up. Even if we were already adults at that point, there is a performance aspect to teaching. Let's not pretend there's not. And it doesn't work well in the online environment. It just doesn't. And for a lot of people who feel that teaching is important, they also feel that particular aspect is what makes teaching teaching. I'm here to tell you folks, I've taught both online and in person. They're very different experiences, but they're both equally rewarding. Get your performance on somewhere else, okay, for a while. Find out if there's a Zoom table reading near you and go perform and, you know, I've been part of a Shakespeare table reading group for several months now. And we meet about once every three weeks and we get to do a Shakespeare play or something like it. If you really need to perform, write some slam poetry and go find an online slam group, all right? We get it. This is something that you're probably mourning. You're probably missing it because that connection with your students, it's like a connection with an audience. It's like, it's like being on stage. And we've all been deprived of our stage because the stage behind the camera is nothing like the stage in the classroom. But I look at it a little differently. Our stage hasn't been taken away. We've changed the stage. And that means that we can change how we perform our roles. If we're gonna use this acting lingo, we can change how we perform given that it's a different stage. I've seen plays performed on Zoom or table readings performed on Zoom. And yeah, it's very different than seeing a, sta a staged play, but it's still enjoyable. We might be teaching online and it might not be how we envisioned teaching, but that doesn't mean we're ineffective and it doesn't mean that our students feel like we're just mysterious blobs of knowledge floating around and, some, and sometimes on Zoom. And actually, even before the pandemic, there was a study I read where students were surveyed on how effective they felt the teacher was and then they looked at the students learning and what they found was that a lot of students thought that the teacher was really effective when they were performing and making the students laugh and you know and riffing on stuff and and basically being Mr. Keating and a lot of the teachers also felt that that was when they were the most effective but the test scores showed no difference between the students who said yeah he was a great teacher he was fun he was funny he made us laugh and the students who said well, he taught us what we needed to know. It was kind of boring, but we learned. There was actually no difference. So that feeling of being effective because you're having that back and forth peppered conversation, probably according to that study was lying to you. The way you feel about teaching is not how effective you are or are not. Or it may be more effective in the moment. So short term, it might help something stick and hopefully that lasts longer term. But the test might not have been for another few weeks after. So 
between when you felt like something was really funny and you learned it and between taking the test, time has passed. So the question is, is whether that thought stuck with you or whether it went by the wayside. So live lectures in the classroom, no, they're not like video conference lectures. And here's some reasons why. In, in a video conference, students may not have a camera in the first place. And if they do, they may not want to turn them on. And so you get confronted with that row of black squares. And this has certain effects. Right. Our students, to some extent, remain anonymous, or at the very least, they remain faceless, which means that if we go to a convocation in the future or a graduation, they go, I was in your class. And we go, I remember you were one of the black squares that I saw. Mm -hmm. But you know what? The Brady Bunch squares. But you know what? If you don't remember faces or names all that well, it's not going to feel all that different. It's still going to be that same awkwardness. But it's also going to be a chance to kind of laugh about this and say, you know what? This wasn't what we expected when we signed up to teach. It wasn't what you signed up when you wanted to enroll in college, but we got through it. And having that row of black squares, we can laugh about it. Teachers might feel isolated. They might feel frustrated because they don't get that real-time response. Adam was talking about when we ask questions back and forth, where it's one thing to get to ask a question and see like 20 or 30 seconds later, people start popping off with answers. Whereas now we're a lot more keenly aware of time. And that same 20 or 30 seconds might feel like a lot longer. Oh, and there's that point where you're sitting there, you're the only picture that's moving, everything else is a black square. You, and that probably feels a little bit like being under the spotlight and nobody's talking. It's hard enough when you're in a classroom and nobody's talking. But when you're sitting there in this video conference and you've asked a question and it's been 30 or 40 seconds and no one's responding, that can be really difficult for a lot of folks. And it's, and it's normal to feel like that. You know, and another issue is that you might just wonder, are they engaged? Are they listening? Are they watching? It's a row of black squares. I have no idea if they're engaged or not. And the problem there too is, you know, you, it's not like you can see their raised hands. I mean, granted, Zoom allows them to put the little blue hand up, but what if they're on the second page of a 40 student class, right? You only get to see about 20 at a time. And so that, that rapport, that back and forth, that connectivity is very different when you have to teach to a row of black squares. It's just not the same as an in-person class, no matter what administration assumes. Teachers might worry about taking attendance. Adam mentioned, do I need to really read every name on my roster as they sign in and check them in, yes or no? And that's, again, going to the assumption that if they've signed in, then that means they're engaged, and that's not always going to be the case. And then, of course, there's all the non-people things, like, internet availability and internet strength. Loss of connection happens. So do sound quality issues. So do video quality issues. Denor and I, we record our, our podcast on Zoom and there will be every now and then Denor will say, stop, stop, stop talking because you're sounding like, because my internet will decide that it's going to stretch out what I'm saying. This happens during class too. And I remember back in April, there was a woman who was saying, okay, they only gave us like two weeks to prepare. And I am going to be, what am I, what am I going to do if I look stupid because I don't know what I'm doing? I'll never get the respect of my students back. You know what? Students know. They understand that this happens. They get it. And denora has got a funny story about that that he'll tell you in a few minutes. So apart from the peopling things, 
there's that. And then? We also have to deal with how we expect our students to behave now that they're learning online as opposed to being in the classroom. And at home, our students have access to their pets. There may be children in the house or younger siblings. There might be other family members. Hey, there might be noise. People might be eating or drinking some beer while taking a class. I've seen people smoke or vape during my classes. We'll talk about that a little bit later. And the big question is, is well, what do we do? And one of the things I'll, I'll say right now and in the story is, it's not our job to be the vice squad. If our students are engaged in class and they're not disrupting, who cares if they're having a beer? Who cares if they're vaping? As far as I can tell, no one has gotten a contact high off of Zoom. No one can smell what's being smoked. No one can smell the alcohol. As long as that student is engaged with the class, or at the bare minimum, they're not being disruptive, let it slide. Be aware, again, our students are people and they're adults. As long as they're at home and safe, and as long as they're putting in some effort into our classes, that's what we should be focused on, not whether or not they enjoyed a beer during one of our lectures. And as someone said when this was brought up in our teaching groups, you know, they're smoking, they're vaping. You know, I can tell that they are smoking marijuana in my room. What do I do? Someone said, what you should be worried about is if they need to toke in order to get through your class, you need to step up your game. Okay. So, yeah. And, and the thing is, there's a lot of people who get really uptight and forget that the student is not sitting in a classroom with you. They are in their home. They are sitting on their bed or at their kitchen table and their parents are right over there on the couch or their kids are running around in the next room or even in the same room. We've got to let go of how that makes us all uptight and because it's not going to fix the problem getting annoyed with your student because they're not middle class. It's not going to fix anything if you start saying, you can't drink when you're in class. They're probably going to give you the middle finger, give you a black screen and get their beer. If they need to get drunk while they're taking your class, perhaps you should examine why that is, because I guarantee you it's not a them thing. It's a you thing. Now, online teaching really works best when you teach asynchronously. Sorry, there's no way around it. Asynchronous online is far preferable to in real-time teaching simply because students are able to access the material repeatedly. They can ask you questions more freely and in a more private or more discreet way than having to ask in front of their peers. But for classes that are mostly about learning or analyzing and communicating information, learning asynchronously is fine. It doesn't work so well if there's a class that has a hands-on component, like Adam said, sculpting or singing or biology or any other lab class where you have to be hands-on. But if you're teaching economics, if you're teaching sociology, political science, anthropology, English, anthropology, you're able to, there are ways that you can effectively teach online. Now, if your class requires lab work, performance or anything hands-on, yeah, you're gonna have to get creative in order to make it work. And when we get to our third episode about synchronous teaching, we'll talk about some ways to kind of 
work around the university's synchronicity requirements. Now, in our own experiences with this, and this has just been since we all went online in March, during an online office hour last spring, I had one student who dropped and reconnected an amazing nine times. And then they finally sent me an email and said, I can't do this. I'm, I'm dropping every 15 seconds. Their internet was so poor that I was surprised they were even able to connect. But after that happened, I sent out a list of guidelines for Zoom, like make sure your camera is off. Make sure your camera is off. Come in first, just on voice. If you can't get on through the internet, then get on through a phone call. It's okay. Here's the phone number to get into my Zoom room. But they were really, really stressed out about the fact that they couldn't make their tech work. Now, I could either have been annoyed with them for not having the brand new iPhone and perfect internet, or I could have said, man, that could be me, <laughs> which is what I did. And then I said, how do I help them? And then I sent out some guidelines. Kind of related to that, I've had students who mid-lecture drop in and out. They keep trying to reconnect. I'll have students apologize and say, I'm so sorry that I came in late, or I'm so sorry it dropped me. And I tell them what I'll tell you now. Why are you apologizing to me? I, I appreciate that effort that you're making to sit in on my class. I know how frustrating it is when tag drops because that's happened to me in the middle of lectures. I don't want to make someone who's already stressed out and feeling bad feel even worse. That's not going to make them want to learn. It's not going to make them feel good. I try and tell my students who come in late, I'm really happy to see you here. And I genuinely mean it because I appreciate that they're taking time out of their day to get through our material. It's not as easy as it was when we were meeting in person. We don't have that common area of the campus that we can all share. And so if anyone is coming in late, I appreciate them making that effort and that's how I try and view it. And I mentioned that I've had my internet drop during lecture and that makes for a fun five to 10 minutes of panicking because oh my God, my students are going to think I ditched them or I wanted to uh, flake out on their class. I was just done and I just was out of there. But I was able to reset the router. I was able to reconnect and my students all stayed. We laughed it off because we know that internet instability is part of our reality. It's out of our control. So we roll with the punches together. Now I'm a control freak and I won't try to deny it. And I had to give up a lot of the things that I'd always felt I had control over before. I had to learn how to let go and how to let things ride. I had to realize there would come a point when a student showed up in pajamas or in another level of clothed or unclothedness that I wasn't comfortable with. For example, lots of young men, it's a heat wave right now, okay? We've just been at 105 degrees in Long Beach, California, which is an unheard of temperature here. Most of my male students are probably not wearing shirts right now because it's freaking hot. Most of my female students, they're probably wearing bikinis. Why? Because it's freaking hot. And a lot of my students don't live in homes that have air conditioning. Again, see that middle-class assumption, right? So if they show up to class and they're wearing a bikini top or they're wearing no t-shirt, I have to allow that to be okay because they're in their own home. So I can't really demand that they show up in a suit. I've also witnessed many other instructors especially in our teaching groups, struggling with the basic fact that, sure, you can demand any number of behaviors and actions. You can give them a whole list of, you must dress this way, and you must have a quiet space, and you must have nobody else in the room, and blah, blah, blah. but the fact is, students cannot always comply with that, either due to their home situation or due to their available tech, sometimes both. 
So my fellow control freaks, we are going to have to discard the list of how students will dress or how they will behave when they're in our video classrooms. Try to keep your requirements to things that are actually doable, even with low bandwidth, like netiquette rules, okay? No trolling, don't call each other names in the chat, things like that. And a request that if a student has to do something which they don't want seen on video, that they shut their camera off. Like I said, I've had students drink beer, I've had students vape on or in class while online. And those are things they probably wouldn't do in person, but it's because when we're on campus, we're all sharing the same space. So everyone else in that classroom can smell what you're smoking. Everyone else can smell, can smell the alcohol from the beer bottle. But if we're at home and you're adults, I don't care what you do as long as you're in this class and you're trying to get through work. If you have that beer or that joint or you're vaping nicotine and, you, and it's more, hey, I've always wanted to have a beer during a class or it's kind of relaxed, it's a cool, relaxed feel more power to you because it's not my job to police your behavior. My job is to teach you. And that means that as long as you're at the very minimum, not disrupting your peers and you're not disrupting me, I'm okay with a wide range of behavior. But if that behavior does start to annoy students, if I keep getting complaints from students saying, hey, it's really distracting watching him, uh, hit the bong, it's really distracting when I see them crushing a six-pack, it's probably not good, then I might privately message that student, the student who's smoking or who's drinking, and say, hey, you might want to turn your camera off because it's starting to distract some of the other students here. Because I'm very good, I'm okay with having a very relaxed work environment as long as we're focused. I'm okay with a relaxed, focused class that's getting through material together, but I draw the line at allowing disruptions to students because that's not fair to them. Now let's talk for a minute or two about ethics, okay? Ethically, we have to realize we are all in a brand new situation that really has no real precedent, although precedents are being constructed even as we speak. Basically, we're all building the airplane while we're flying it. Whenever possible, Erring on the side of kindness and caution and compassion is a lot better than trying to force the situation into a preconceived notion of what things should look like, because when you do that, it will break. Allow the students to show up without their cameras on. Let go of the need to police and work on communication instead. Yes, there are going to be some students who will cheat, but most of them won't. Yes, some students will complain about how you sound on video or make fun of what you look like, but most won't. And many students may have difficulties that they just don't want to share with you, like an abusive partner or parent in their home, or a money situation that makes it difficult to impossible to get the kind of tech that allows what we would think of as real participation in a synchronous class. We have to be aware of those things. And we have to accept that they are probably outside our students' control, which means they're also outside our control. Our job is to give our students the opportunities to learn and the help needed to guide them in their educational journey. It is not our job to stigmatize our students for behaving differently during an online class in a pandemic than they would have if they're meeting in person in a classroom. And it is not our job to stigmatize them for being poor and not having that available technology. And our job, it's to communicate information to the students and assess whether or not they learned it. Ethically, we have to use methods and systems 
that don't make it impossible for a student to learn. So valid methods for this include online quizzes and online exams, reflection papers they can turn in through your learning management system, allowing them to photograph their homework and upload it in an email. If you're in a video conference class, find some ways for students to indicate agreement or confusion or disagreement in the chat instead of forcing them to use voice or video. So you could say in the chat, put one if you understand, two if you're confused, and three if you disagree. In a later episode in the series, we are going to talk about how to work around an institution's demand for this real-time video teaching that they mistakenly think is replacing on-the-ground classrooms. And our recommendations, one is that you set a few basic ground rules that serve to help all of your students. The dress codes may feel like you're teaching professional behavior, but like I said earlier, when people work from home, they're not necessarily dressing up every day. So I tell my students that my classes have a few basic rules and they're not all that different from when we met in person. Number one, come ready to work when you come to class. Meaning once you're signing into this class, you're focusing on this class. Two, respect your peers. And that goes into the netiquette, it goes into the lack of Zoom bombing, it goes into having respectful conversations because part of our job when we teach is to deal with really uncomfortable topics. And that means that we have to give our students that latitude that we would want them to give us, but we also have to expect them to give each other some latitude. But that also means that it's on students to act respectfully. The last big rule that I have is realize that I'm here as your teacher, and that means I'm here to teach you, not BS you. So don't BS me. Communicate with me when problems happen, and that way we can figure out ways to work around them. That can be, hey, my internet isn't working. How do I get through this? What do I do? It could be, I've got to take care of someone and I can't take the test on this day. What can I do? Or I need to turn in an assignment late because my hours at work change. What can I do? If you let me know early on, I'm more than happy to work with you. I've had students who came to me three weeks after the fact saying, but I missed class because of work and I thought you knew. If that wasn't communicated to me, there's no way I'm going to know. So communicate with me. Let me know when stuff happens. We'll figure something out together. So that's what we have for you in this teaching in transition episode of Learning Made Easier. Please send this on to professionals who may be facing these issues. The easiest link to share is probably our Patreon. So patreon.com slash learning made easier. And if you're able to support us on Patreon right now, we'd really appreciate it. Please join us next time for our next Teaching in Transition episode, where we'll talk about the hidden inequities students experience when they have to be in a synchronous video class. You've been listening to Learning Made Easier, a podcast about how we learn, how we teach, and how they overlap. We want to say thank you to all of our supporters on Patreon who make this podcast possible. If you want to support us, please go to www.patreon.com slash learning made easier. We look forward to seeing you next week.